0: Right back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown.
1: There are a number of different scenarios related to the pandemic playing out in Ontario. We have daily COVID cases declining, although people are still dying after contracting the virus, most of these people unvaccinated, and there are ongoing concerns related to the Delta variant. In addition, the percentage of partially vaccinated and double-vaxxed, Eligible Ontario residents continue to climb, but there are still 20% of people in this province eligible for a vaccine who've yet to even get one shot. Then there is step three reopening of the province, which begins on Friday. Joining us to discuss where we're at and where we're going, Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID Science Advisory Table. Doctor, thank you for making time for us again.
2: Thanks for having me again.
1: Dr. Yuni, let's first talk about step three. How confident are you that Friday is the right time to to open to the next level?
2: Oh, if things continue the way they are also tomorrow, I'm waiting still for tomorrow's date. I think I'm uh, pretty confident that we're ready to go because of all the good work that has been done in the province.
1: And when you talk about good work, is that uh, the people behind the scenes combined with the actual citizens of the province?
2: I think it's all of us. It's two aspects. You know, we can't see one in isolation from the other. One is that people were still careful enough. Um, that the things didn't explode despite the partial vaccine coverage we have. And the other one is that people are getting vaccinated and that everybody helps to bring vaccines to people. This is all really just a joint effort. And so far, it really just continues to hold. Um, Ontario is on fire and we just need mm-hmm. to get better and better. This will help us to open up more and more.
1: Help us understand how well Ontario is doing globally with our vaccine rollout.
2: Oh, we're world leading, surely. Um, So when I I look into that, you know, apart from very few places um, in the world, small islands, typically, we are just the ones who managed to uh, get most needles per uh, per 100,000 people into people's arms during the uh, the last few weeks. This is tremendous.
1: It has been it has been absolutely remarkable just watching it from the sidelines how quickly the second doses were moved up for the different age groups, uh, a lot of that because of the mixing and matching, which uh, brings me to the question. I do want to ask you uh, about your thoughts of what was said at the World Health Organization the other day, which effectively was a false Statement that mixing and matching, uh, if it's it's if it's to be done by individuals, is dangerous. I mean, a ludicrous statement based on the scientific evidence that's out there.
2: Yeah, she got a bit lost there. One thing we need to be aware of. Um, I understand that she was talking there um, mainly about um, booster shots. You know, typically for us, it would be the third dose, but nevertheless. Uh, What she said was essentially evidence-free. There was no evidence that would support her notions, and I think she just got a bit lost, to be honest. She made a mistake. It's very clear what we're doing here is the absolutely right thing. And if you look at it you know, from an immunological perspective, not only from a clinical and from what we have been doing for years, for instance, with influenza vaccine, it's very clear, first of all, that we have robust data for AstraZeneca and Pfizer, for example, but it's also very clear that Moderna and Pfizer are absolutely exchangeable. The spike protein that the body generates after it receives uh, the uh, the uh, Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, they're nearly identical, and it's clear that this works out. So there's no question, there's no doubt at all, and uh, the science table agrees on that, Nassie agrees on that, and she was just a bit lost there.
1: Well, it's good to hear you say that as well. Now, this approach of mixing and matching and getting people double vaxxed sooner, is it being embraced in other countries around the world or are we leading the way there as well?
2: Look, we're leading the way. That we first went just for the first doses, and we were then very quick. Also, thanks to the federal government, you know, who, with hindsight, really did an excellent deal with uh, with uh, Pfizer and with Moderna. Uh, and uh, then we first went without compromise to vaccinate as fast as we can, could with first doses. And the moment that when we then saw that it was necessary to pivot because of Delta, we pivoted very swiftly and did the same thing with second doses. And now the only challenge is to get you know the last mile done. As you said it, we are at nearly 80% now of people aged 12 plus with their first doses these nearly 80% would need to go to nearly 90% if we want to play this safe with delta.
1: Okay, so if we're talking about 10% of eligible residents that we the goal would be to get vaccinated uh starting with a first dose, who are we how are you uh how are you talking to that part of the population? What is that part of the population and how do you get them to get in for their shots?
2: Look, I think we have two different um Uh, stories going on. There will be those who just will deny the effectiveness and the safety of the vaccines, whatever you're doing. And that's, you know, related to conspiracy theories, etc. You can't do much about that. This is just like suggesting the Earth is flat and uh, the moon landing never happened. Right. So we need to let that go for sure. But then there's quite a lot of people who just are a bit, you know, at the edge or have had some wrong information. There's a lot, of course, out there, which is dangerous. You know, stuff like it could interfere with fertility. It has been clearly established that this is not the case, for example, that, you know, costs us some uh, vaccine coverage in uh, fertile women. This is so sad. Actually, stuff like that. We just need to keep working on that to get the information right. You know, all of us need to be little activists. Again, talk to people. Whenever I bump into somebody, not physically, but, you know, just being close also in jobs, I ask. First thing I ask, oh, did you already receive your second dose? Right. I just really just all of us need to do that. This is really a success story. We need to keep it a success story because we're dealing with Delta people did so well. If we still would need to deal with alpha, this would be game over. We could go back to a normal tomorrow and nothing would happen anymore. Since we have Delta, we just need to keep going.
1: I'm speaking with Dr. Peter Yuni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. So which demographic needs the most attention? Uh, we were running a story this morning on Zoomer Radio News about the 19 to 39 age group. Is that uh, the group that, uh, that needs the most work?
2: Yeah, I think we need to keep going in this age group, indeed. You know, and it depends on where you are in the province. Um, and uh, there are areas outside of the GTA where still a bit of work needs to be done. That's really, really important. So you know, when we talk about eighty on average, of course, a lot of that is also related to that people above sixty-five, for instance, have an amazing vaccine coverage. And uh, now uh, also, when I look into you know the uh, the Greater Toronto Area. Really high coverages also for younger people, and we just need to go there also in other places if you want to see a cautionary tale go to waterloo no waterloo didn't you know uh, uh, want to be where they are obviously uh, but they had lower vaccine coverages also because we had to make sure that we keep peel and parts of Toronto under control that were really really burdened as you know, but what we then see is how fast this goes and delta takes hold so what we need to be aware of here is not Now, Delta is a different beast. It's much more transmissible. And this means it will find its way into all unvaccinated people eventually within a year. It's it's really clear that within six to 12 months, 80 to 90 percent of people who are not vaccinated will get infected once we open up fully.
1: That is incredible information and hopefully a motivation for people who are on the fence.
2: I believe so, too. And look, it's true. It's just a different beast. If we still would deal with the, you know, I call it coronavirus classic, you know, a year ago. This seems like, you know, a kid's game now, meanwhile. Um, This would not be such a big deal and these people wouldn't be at risk. But now you have two possibilities, most of us, to get immune. Either you get vaccinated fully or you get infected and that's not a walk in the park. And we need to make clear that this is unfortunately the case. This thing starts to be a bit comparable with measles if it comes to transmissibility. You know, measles is about twice as transmissible. But we are aware of how, uh, how measles can behave, no? But measles also has an advantage on several ones compared with COVID. One is you get immune and you stay immune, you know, when you have had the disease or when you um, were vaccinated. And the other one is there are no reservoirs in animals, unlike with uh, with, uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus causing COVID-19, where there are loads of animals getting infected too, which means the virus finds its way to the unvaccinated eventually.
1: Well, I I think you folks uh, at the science advisory table and the individual medical officers of health uh, are really, I can see you pivoting and I see even this morning Dr. Lowe in Peel region, he was straight up, he said, you don't get a vaccine, you don't get double vaccinated, You two things are going to happen. You're either, well, you're going to contract the Delta variant, you'll either have uh, symptoms of a cold or you'll be in ICU with a tube down your throat and you're playing roulette with your health. I thought that was just excellent.
2: Well, it's unfortunately true. You know, there's the other part, which is a lot of people out there among adults, it's probably 20%. It could also be higher who have had COVID struggle with long-term symptoms, long COVID. And again, this is really challenging. If you don't believe it, start to talk to people with long COVID. This is, again, just something you can avoid by something as simple as an needle twice. That's all. Mm-hmm. Stop with conspiracy theories. Stop, you know, believing wrong information. It's just a rabbit hole, which is not true. And just get vaccinated. It's vaccine preventable, this disease. And we are privileged that we have great vaccines in this province.
1: Yeah, we absolutely are. Dr. Peter Uni, thank you once again for your time here on Fight Back.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. Have a good day.
1: You too. Dr. Peter Uni is Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. He's giving us the goods from behind the scenes uh, and how they advise the Premier and his Cabinet ministers going forward. Thank you for listening, Jane, for Libby. We will chat again tomorrow about uh, the hot topics of the day. In the meantime, stay tuned for Bob Comsic and the news.
0: Jane Brown. By
1: the way, if you did not get through on that extremely hot topic about vaccine passports, remember Free for All Friday is coming up in a couple of days and we can revisit the topic at that time. Well, I'm sure this is welcome news to you if you have a loved one in long term care, but you may also have some concerns related to the change. Ontario's Long-Term Care Ministry has released a statement just in the last couple of hours saying as of Friday, as part of Step 3 of reopening, fully immunized staff, caregivers, and visitors will no longer require a negative COVID test before entering nursing homes. Joining us with reaction is Lisa Levin, Chief Executive Officer of Advantage Ontario. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Jane. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Is this the right time to lift the COVID testing restriction for fully immunized
3: individuals? I think it is uh, the time that is right to do this uh, because people has been shown that if they're fully vaccinated, uh, the vaccines have a very high level of effectiveness. Uh, and we need to balance that alongside uh, the needs of residents um, and you know, to to go back to a new normal uh, in their lives and also to free up staff in long-term care to be able to focus on care, not just on administering uh, testing when people come into the home.
1: So it's, it's interesting because this kind of uh, is a continuation of the conversation we just had about vaccine passports. What will then be required to prove that you are fully immunized uh, as a staff member, a visitor, a caregiver to long-term care?
3: I'm actually not sure when the uh, policy just came out, and there are many, many pages to it, so yes. <laughs> I haven't personally read it yet. You guys are always fast with your breaking news, uh, but we can certainly let you know, and you can let people know um, if people have to actually show that or if it's just an attestation.
1: Well, and that that is a good point. I mean, the easiest way would be to print off that email that I've referenced uh, throughout the show today from the ministry of health showing the date that you got vaccinated and whether you've had your first and second doses.
3: Mhm. Yeah, so I do have to go back and uh find out if you know the details on that. Okay. And this mm-hmm. is um
1: so this this is going into effect on Friday as part of step 3. Uh Correct. there are there are some other restrictions to be eased on Friday as well. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, so Uh, I would put them into two categories. One, which is, um, you know, reducing the burden on paperwork of staff, uh, such as doing testing for people who are vaccinated. And the other is bringing fun and joy back into the home. So one of the activities that was restricted and whoever thought this would be a contentious activity is karaoke uh, and singing um, excursions outside of the home. And, um, you know, just Having social events, playing cards together, um, having people be able to, uh, you know, do recreational activities um, that before were not allowed can now return to the homes. And also, people can go on day or overnight absences. Re- uh, residents can go on overnight or, or day absences, regardless of their immunization status. Uh, so those are some of the things that... Um, you know, there's a whole list of them. Some of them are pretty technical, uh, but it will really help homes be able to uh, open up the doors a little more widely uh, to a new normal.
1: You mentioned that uh, residents won't have to be fully immunized to leave, and yet uh, the percentage of residents, long-term care residents in this province who've had two shots is very, very high, isn't it?
3: Yes, it is. Um, I believe it's 93%, but mm-hmm. I don't know if I have the latest statistic. And I'm just finding
1: here in the in the small print of the release from the long-term care ministry this morning that, in fact, this is how it's going to work as of Friday. People can prove they're fully immunized, won't have to show a negative COVID test, by showing the physical or emailed receipt that was provided to them at the time of vaccination from the Ministry of Health. So that email, okay. yeah, sure. so that is that yeah. is great. I mean, that's easy, yeah. right? You can even show yeah. it on your phone. It's It's... Mm-hmm. Very simple. Yeah. Um, now there have been some outbreaks, Lisa, of the Delta variant in a few Ontario nursing homes recently, like in 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 the past days, which have been brought in from the outside. How will these changes, or are there any concerns as a result of these outbreaks, with regard to the, the loosening of restrictions?
3: Well, it's possible with some of this loosening that there could be more. Covid coming into the home, but at this point in time, Covid seems to be a very different kind of Covid. Um, I believe people can get can can have Covid and be asymptomatic. We are; it's very rare that you see a death um, or hospitalization if someone has been fully vaccinated with Covid. And the government had to make a decision between weighing the uh, risks of contracting Covid and what that now means to those who are fully vaccinated with what it means to keep people living in isolation, separated from one another um, and to have such a strong regimen in the home of um, residents being tested twice a day. So twice a day, not tested, but residents were getting temperature checks and getting screened twice a day in, until like it's still happening mm-hmm. when so many of them have been vaccinated. And that takes away from uh, care at the bedside to do other things. So it's that balancing act. And I suppose there's no perfect decision But it seems to me that uh, this is something that we need to uh, move forward with, and that many of our members uh, support.
1: It is Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, and I'm joined by Lisa Levin, Chief Executive Officer of Advantage Ontario. We're talking about how, as of Friday, the Ontario Long-Term Care Ministry will no longer require staff members, visitors, caregivers to nursing homes to present a negative COVID test as long as they show proof of being fully immunized. How do you think that this decision is going to play out with staff members? Because it has been an ongoing conversation and a surprise to many, that there are personal support workers within long-term care who are still holding out on getting vaccinated.
3: Well, I think people will react differently. Uh, those who have been doubly vaccinated will be probably be relieved. They no longer have to, you know, get the tests, which generally have been less intrusive um, than previously, but it's frustrating for them to have to stop every time they go in and, and or a few times a week and get tested. Um, and for those who have, who have not received two vaccinations yet, um, they'll have to be tested one to two times a week through a rapid antigen test. And it's possible that some people might be encouraged to get the vaccine mm-hmm. uh, to avoid having to go through that. But it's a very personal decision and some people it's not an option medically. They, they can't do it and others it's a Personal choice or a religious choice, and at this point, it's not mandated so that people be vaccinated.
1: No, and it won't. I mean, according to Premier Ford, he is not going to mandate it. He is only strongly encouraging personal support workers to get double vaxxed if they haven't already. Right. Uh, And and are you seeing more of an uptake in the vaccine from staff in long term care as, as time goes on?
3: Yes, I mean, I don't have. Access to the statistics. I'm I'm not a government official, but there is a new policy government has put in place that requires um, workers in homes to do one of three things. They either have to prove that they've been vaccinated, uh, or they're waiting for their second uh, dose um, and haven't been able to receive it, or they have to show they have a, a medical note, or they have to take um a te- they have to take education, um on the vaccination. This has, anecdotally, I've heard this has increased uptake uh, in the homes for some workers, but not all. But the ministry is collecting data on this, so we'll be able to get a sense of how much this has uh, moved things forward in terms of increased vaccination rates. But there still are a number of people across Ontario who continue to refuse the vaccine.
1: Right. Right.
3: Lisa, I want to ask
1: you before we wrap th- things up. Uh, Rod Phillips has been the new long-term care minister now for uh, a number of weeks, not very long. Um, are you seeing a change in uh, attitude around long-term care from the Ford government uh, as a result of Rod Phillips moving in? Is it too soon? Uh, you know, have you had any personal connection with him? I mean, how how is the change being received?
3: I think it's still really early days. Uh, Minister Phillips has to get up to speed on the intricacies of the file. Uh, He certainly reached out early on. Um, We actually, he's you know, we're going to be meeting him via Zoom um, next week, uh, a group of uh, us and our members, and um, we'll see what his perspectives are. But I I don't see any huge changes in the direction the government is taking uh, towards long-term care. And with a new minister, you have a new sense, like a new sense of energy um, to transform the system, I think. And uh, I, I think that um, there's a lot uh, moving forward uh, for him to to do. And it'll be interesting to see how things play out. But I, I think it'll go well.
1: Voters will be watching over the next year, if that's for sure, because well, we yeah, know just... the devastation is it was just it was unthinkable what happened.
3: Well, he apologized mm-hmm. um, to the Ontarians. And, and yes, uh, it, it it's surreal, uh, even still, what happened in long-term care. And unfortunately, um, it happened and we just need to move forward and transform the system. And I think there's a lot of energy and interest in doing that. And we're going to um, hold government to uh, those commitments to move forward with things like four hours of care. And they, they said they will. And uh, we're going to be pushing strongly to make improvements for all of those in care and those taking care of them and staff working in homes.
1: We will leave it there. Thank you, Lisa, for your time.
3: Okay, great. Thanks so much, Jane.
1: Lisa Levin is Chief Executive Officer of Advantage Ontario. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And still to come, what advice is being offered to Premier Doug Ford and his cabinet ministers from members of the science advisory table, especially with daily COVID numbers on the decline and vaccine rates on the incline? We will speak with the Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID Science Advisory Table next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is away
1: on vacation this week. Great to have you here with us on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has indicated the federal government is working with the provinces to make sure an internationally accepted proof of COVID vaccination is implemented, but that domestic policies on a COVID vaccine passport will be left up to each provincial government. And that's where there's a disconnect. Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, said yesterday a passport for within Ontario has not been contemplated by the Ford government at Queen's Park. He was responding to news that Toronto Board of Trade President and CEO Jan De Silva said her organization is actively at the table with the Ford government, pushing for them to adopt some sort of vaccine passport requirement. What do you think? Should there be an official vaccine passport issued by the provincial government? Numbers to call 416 740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Jan De Silva is with us to discuss the idea further, as is bioethicist Dr. Carrie Bowman at the University of Toronto. Hello to you both. Hello. Jan, for those who haven't heard your reasoning, why the need for vaccine passports within the province of Ontario?
3: Look, this is about giving our businesses every chance to reopen safely, to remain open safely, and to avoid future lockdowns if we see another surge in cases in the fall. And I think it's worth just uh, clarifying what is intended by the term vaccine passport. If we look at what's been uh, discussed in Quebec, uh, what's being discussed in Europe, what's in place in Europe, a vaccine passport provides the following information. It either provides verification that you've been immunized against COVID, or for those people who choose not to vaccinate, it would provide a uh, proof of a negative COVID test. So it's simply creating the conditions for confidence about the safety of going into a business for workers and for their customers.
1: Jan, don't we already have proof of vaccination that we can print out from those emails that are sent to us after our first and second doses of vaccine?
3: Well, I would say the challenge uh, is that we're then asking uh, restaurant workers and others to be able to determine the the uh, verifiability of what's being presented in paper. Um, we've seen other markets in the world where there's actually a black market for being able to get uh, proof of vaccine certificates. Not saying that would happen here, but I would point to the fact that I think early in the pandemic we missed a window to more effectively digitize contact tracing which would have given us much more uh, granular, immediate information about surges in cases and where they were being located, rather than having to respond with general lockdowns of the entire economy. So we really think the digital tools that are being put in place for international travel should be contemplated to provide the same tools, and support for our businesses. If I could just continue on that, we've been at work since October. The mayor's been at the table, uh, large employers, um, building owners, and the downtown financial district. Pre-COVID, 550,000 daytime employees worked in that district, our largest employment zone in the country. 2,500 small businesses relied on them as their customer base. We've been working on what are the mitigations we can put in place to support sustainable, safe reopening when the time is right. We've looked globally, we've looked uh, domestically at solutions. The top two questions our members are asking us to answer are, what is the plan to keep my business open and how can I assure my workforce and my customers that it's safe to come into my office?
1: So this criteria you were mentioning, um, that would be provided a proof of vaccine. Uh, you mentioned that there could be fraud, uh, and, um, and, and falsifying of those emails that are sent to us after our first and second doses. What precludes that happening with a different form of vaccine proof?
3: Well, I would say we, if we look at what's been developed in New York, if we look what's in use in Europe, um, as of July 1st, the EU went, went, um, public with a platform. They've developed, um, a secure, authenticated platform. I think with technology, there'll always be folks that are saying that will be concerned about the security of that information. All we're saying is that in the case of utilization of a vaccine passport, to support non-essential businesses. Um, It simply is an efficient tool of providing certainty and safety, and it's simply signaling that you've either tested negative for COVID or you've been fully immunized.
1: Now, if the federal government, and Justin Trudeau is indicating that this is going to happen, is issuing vaccine passports, why would we need another one from the provincial government?
3: Well, it, it, this has to do with uh, making it available for businesses to use in the province of Ontario. The international travel passports are a requirement for Canadians to travel globally into these other markets, just as at some point when we reopen our borders in Canada, there'll be similar requirements for some type of uh, proof of immunization to be able to enter the country. We're saying take this down um, to the business level so that we can help our businesses reopen safely, and remain open safely.
1: What do you think about Jan De Silva's idea, her presentation and logic around this? Uh, Do you think that this makes sense as an Ontario resident? So you would have that international vaccine passport for traveling, and then you would have another one for uh, conducting and being involved in non-essential business activities in the province of Ontario. Numbers to call are 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744. 740. I want to go over to our ethicist now, Dr. Carrie Bowman. Let's talk about the ethics around vaccine passports. Do you see any challenges or issues, doctor?
4: Yeah, you know, Dan, I do. I do. And I, you know, I know this is, we're really down to the wire with you know these types of decisions and and you know all sorts of thoughts are emerging all over the country very very quickly so my comments go beyond business by the way my comments go to the and i'm speaking domestically not globally at this point at all it, you know i guess we'll maybe talk about that later but my comments are all domestic you know the, the first thing is do we really really need them um is the question yes globally the situation is horrendous uh there's no question But the numbers are getting better in Canada quickly. When do we need them? Well, first of all, not all Canadians have even had the chance to be fully vaccinated. There's still lots of people waiting for their appointments. And, you know, we're creating something that will divide people. There's no question about it. It will create divisions. And boy, does this world not need any more of that. Freedom of movement really is a democratic principle, and, you know, it will interfere with that for some people. And you could say, well, that's their fault and da-da-da-da-da, but, you know, free choice is part of a democratic society. Um, And look, people will safeguard it. No one's trying to snoop on anybody with vaccine passports that I can see, but there will be an element of surveillance to it. And how many times have we been told that your banking information is safe, your credit card information is safe? And it's not. Things get hacked. Um, so there will be an element of surveillance to them. And boy, oh boy, from a bureaucratic point of view, we're going to have two layers of this, government, you know, sort of provincial and, and, and federal. Um also, you know, I do not think the appetite of politicians in this province or federally is high for vaccine passports. I think they see layers of problems with it. And look, my comments, I'm going to comment just a little bit on on the colleges and universities. Um, you know, these are also moral environments, and they have to think very carefully about how they position themselves ethically. And And when you look at You know, just things like foreign students coming into our colleges and universities, we're not looking at World Health Organization standards. We're looking at Canadian standards. So we're going to start excluding vaccines that we don't like, that the World Health Organization has approved. This will be true for businesses as well, I assume, right? So how fair is that? And if you've been knocked off the list, uh, what are your options if you've had a vaccine they don't like? There's no indication you can start over with another one What, three, four vaccines? I wouldn't suggest anyone does that without research. Um, so there's a lot of problems here.
1: Well, and, and let's speak specifically to Seneca College. They are the first to have yeah. co- to come out and require everybody who's involved in in-person learning, starting in September, that they show proof of double vaccination. So that proof would presumably be uh, the email we get from the Ministry of Health. But you bring up an excellent point that for foreign students, they would have a different form of proof of immunization. And, it and could, we wouldn't like it. Yeah, well, yeah. that. And that's a good
4: question, right? It is a good question. And and please remember, they don't have a lot of options. So if they say, yes, i Sputnik or, or Sinovac or something, what are you going to do? Line up for Pfizer? That is not advisable to have four vaccines in a row or something. I mean, no one knows anything about that. So, you know, we're, we're, we are creating these, these types of divisions. And I have no idea how Seneca would police this or, or you know, I'm at the University of Toronto. I mean, you know where is that campus? It's the downtown core like we're we're opening up so many layers of problems and and by the way, my university's not proposing this, but um you know i I see a lot of bureaucracy i see a lot of concern with all of this, although dr
1: bowman both- mm-hmm. both Ryerson and u of t are requiring full vaccination for people yeah. who will be living in the residences,
4: yeah. And you know, I see residential, I I don't love it either, but I see that as quite different because, you know, this is once a situation is someone's home. And look, a long-term care facility, meaning a nursing home, is someone's home. That's different. And I know the residences on campus, they're, they're shoebox. We all know that, right? So, so that's a lot different than general campus activity.
1: This is really of interest uh, to the Zoomer Radio listeners. Our lines are jammed. I will get to you in just a moment. I do want to get both of your reactions to what Dr. Kieran Moore said yesterday, our new medical officer of health. He basically said uh, that the vision of the government has been to have the highest immunization rate possible through non-mandatory means. He went on to say, I don't think it's necessary at this point, given that Ontarians are coming forward and getting immunized at such a great rate. Right, He even said, uh, Jan Desilva, Silva, that this is not something, provincial vaccine passports, that's being even contemplated by the Ford government.
3: If I could just respond to that, I want to provide the context under which he was making those comments. He was talking about the use of vaccine passports as a tool to incentivize the population to get immunized. Because when Quebec signaled that they would be doing this uh, potentially in the fall when France Uh, indicated it. It created a surge in appointments for vaccination. Uh, Dr. Moore was not speaking about this in the context of could this be another layer of protection for businesses to be able to reopen safely and remain open safely. And so that is the point that we're coming back to. We have struggled and our businesses have gone through so much in the way of sacrifices over the past 15 months, opening, shutting, opening on a limited basis, shutting again, We've done so well on immunization. It's really time to throw as much as we can at this to support the reopening of our economy. And I'll go back again. Our businesses are saying, what is the plan to keep my business open? And how can I make sure my workforce feels it's safe to return to the office? Vaccine passports are about uh, tracking either COVID immunization or a negative COVID test. So, again, it's not saying mandatory vaccination. I'll just pause there. I look forward to interacting with Dr. Bowman and your callers.
1: Dr. Bowman, uh, your reaction to Dr. Moore's comments?
4: Dr. Moore's comments more broadly. I I took them at face value. uh, As what he said, I think he's exactly right. I I have a lot of respect for Dr. Moore. He's in a very new position, and um, I agree with him. Uh, you know, and I, I, I again just want to reiterate that in a, we're already in a crisis. In a deeper crisis like a fourth wave, if we had evidence that this was a direction we had to go in and it was proportional, I, I think we may have to do it. We are not there. That's how I see it. And I,
3: my only concern is why wait for a fourth wave? Let's get well, the because there's so many reasons
4: dinner. and so many problems with doing it now. And, you know, I also think one of our strengths, I don't mean to be critical of the United States. I mean, they've had a lot of challenges and in a lot of ways they've risen to them. It, it took them a while, but it took us a while, too. But, you know, we don't have the divisions that the U.S. has had politically I worry that vaccine passports in any form may divide us, and people that already feel strongly may feel more strongly. And people that are hesitant may say, and I think of my students, this is a violation of my rights. I don't want the government interfering and pushing me into this because I need to go shopping or I need to go to a gym or whatever it may be. There could be pushback on this.
1: Let's go to the Hello. phones now. Hang on for just a minute, Jan. Um, I just want to remind those of you who are just joining us that you're listening to Zoomer Radio, Fight Back, Jane for Libby. Jan De Silva is the president and CEO of the Toronto Board of Trade and bioethicist Dr. Kerry Bowman is with us from the University of Toronto. Jan, just did you want to make a comment there before we go to the phones?
3: No, I, I just wanted to respond to um, the position that this might be a violation of, of people's rights. This is not. This is about personal choice. It's a, about a choice. If you want to be able to go to a concert with thousands of people, if a requirement is to make sure there's safety for those attending. Then you've got a choice of either providing proof of vaccination or proof of a negative COVID test. Uh, we we make choices every day about how we keep ourselves and uh, our society safe. So this is not about taking away rights. This is simply saying how do we create personal choices that help the safe reopening of the economy, mm. safety for our workers and avoiding at all costs another general lockdown again?
1: You are both making strong arguments. Uh, what do you think out there? 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. Let's go to Ron in Guelph. Ron, what would you like to add?
5: Thanks for taking my call, Jane. Um, You know, the lady makes a lot of, I'm sorry, my memory isn't as good as it used to be. She makes a a lot, both of them make a lot of great points. Um, It's a matter of choice. Um, If you want to go to these places, if you want to do this and go there, you either have a choice where, yes, I'm going to be double vaccinated with a a passport to prove that I'm safe to be around other people, or you're not. I mean, it's, um, I know that in Montreal and Quebec where my son is, um, They're going to be, um, I believe they're going to be having to have a double uh, vaccination uh, before they can go back to in class uh, classes, more or less. Um, I just think that my biggest concern right now is, um, is this vaccine passport going to be accepted if I travel to the U.S. and come back into Ontario?
1: Well, well, right. And I mean, I'm for just for me personally, Jan, I like the idea that I, I have my email. I know what you're saying about fraud, but I can literally print the email from the Ministry of Ontario, which says when my full name, when I got the vaccine, what vaccine I got, that I am fully vaccinated. And if there is a Canadian passport for me to get on a plane and go somewhere around the world, I like that concept. It just feels like there might be too many layers of passports, if we get into yet another document.
3: Yeah, and Jane, I would simply say the way that we would be encouraging government to look at this is all about interoperability. It, no reason to have multiple versions, just if, even if the Canadian one could be interoperable with whatever put in place um, for those in the province of Ontario that are choosing not to travel internationally. It's all about making it interoperable. And this will also be an issue as we look at 2022 and 2023, and hopefully the resumption of major events and and conferences in the city, we're going to need some way of having interoperability with people that are coming into our market to do business or to attend those events.
1: Let's go to Rose in Bowmanville. Rose, uh, what do you think about uh, how we're uh, having this conversation about vaccine passports, what we should have, what's too much, what's not enough? Well, Well, pardon me. I think that if we were to reissue the OHIP card, and put a picture of the person like it is now, and the address, which I don't think is on. I didn't look it up, but I don't think it's on.
3: And then uh, have the thing a different color so and pale, so it can be read easily. Uh, I think it would be a lot easier to do and more recognizable. Everybody has an OHIP card pretty well.
1: What do you think about that, Dr. Bowman, using our health cards as a way of showing proof of vaccination?
4: You know, there's a lot of creative ideas out there. But again, I mean, I I think it's pretty strong. I mean, it forces people, uh, you know, you're you're really pushing people, I think, too hard on that one. Uh, That OHIP card is a right of all Ontarians. And I'm not saying no one's proposing withholding the OHIP card. But I do appreciate the point. uh, Rose, I think it's the name is making that there's got to be a way to simplify that. I -hmm. I don't know. You'd need a logistical expert on that one. But, you know, I just want to go back to I I really do want to reiterate this is an infringement on people's rights to simply say, no, it's a matter of choice. They have to if they want to go to that concert, if they want to do that shopping, they want to go to that college, they have to do this. And even if their assessment of the risks is I'm not willing to take this risk. They need to take this shot, uh, shots, plural. Um, So that really is an infringement upon that. Um, Anyway.
3: Dr. I I think it's worth clarifying. Uh, I think, unfortunately, the emphasis on uh, vaccination passport overlays the impression that it's only tracking if you've got a double vaccination. Vaccination passports, the way they're being deployed, planned in Quebec and in Europe, it's proof of either immunization or a negative COVID test. So if you're choosing not to get vaccinated, that's fine. Just get a negative COVID test as you would if you want to go on a flight Um, The problem with that, though, the problem
1: with that, though, is that you could have gotten your negative COVID test. And this is you're right, Jan. This is what they required in France today to attend Bastille Day ceremonies, either a negative COVID test or proof of vaccination. But what if between the time you got your negative test, you contracted the Delta variant because you haven't been immunized? Then, I mean, there's a loophole there as well.
4: There is. And how long is a negative test good for? A week, I doubt it. Uh, You know, so it's different when you're about to travel. But if you've got a negative COVID test from two weeks ago, also, I I can't remember but it's Clearly,
3: um, what would be required here is the same way as if you're traveling. You need it within a certain period of time before the event. That's that's how that is. The thing about
1: about traveling, though, uh, what's been implemented by the Trudeau government as of July 5th is that this is for double vaxxed Canadians. So you've had both shots, you're coming back into the country, you need to have had a negative COVID test within seventy-two hours of arrival. This isn't a negative COVID test and you haven't been vaccinated. Uh, at that point, you need to go into quarantine for two full weeks. So there is there is a bit of a difference here between just a negative COVID test and proof of double vaccination.
3: Well, actually actually there isn't because prior the only thing that the um that has changed now for travelers coming back into canada is they no longer have to quarantine right prior to that uh even if you weren't vaccinated you still needed to do the negative COVID test within uh, hours of either leaving the country or returning to the country the only difference is now that you're immunized even though you still have to have that negative test you no longer have to go into quarantine so that's the difference.
1: This is a really hot topic. Uh, we've piqued no. the interest of our Zoomer radio listeners. Let's go to Daryl in Toronto. Daryl, what's your view?
5: Well, first, all, I don't think there's a need
3: for multiple documents in it, but I'm in favor of the idea of, of the passport
5: thing. Um, as to uh, your speaker, he's talking about, you know, um, infringing upon people's rights. There's no such thing as rights without responsibilities.
2: And the responsibility is, is to the community, which is where the rights come from in the first place. So those those people who, uh, you know, talking about cre- the document itself is not creating any divisions. The divisions are there already by those people who choose not to do it. It's one thing to exercise your freedom of choice,
5: but you don't get to ignore the responsibilities of that choice. You have to live by them. Right. That's part of making the choice.
1: Thank you, Daryl. Thanks for your comments. Dr. Bowman, what about that? So you, you uh, I guess what you're saying is if you, if you want to go to Seneca College in person this fall, you have to be double vaccinated.
4: You do. And, you know, there is always a social responsibility. He's quite right to make that point. Um, but, you know, is this the case where you have to do that? So if you want to go to Seneca College in the fall and your view is Look, this is a remote, remote, remote chance. You know, a 19-year-old healthy athletic male, I say that because this is the cohort that has rarely occurred to, uh, you have an incidence of myocarditis or something, right? And so you only got that vaccination because you had to um you know when your assessment was i don't actually feel comfortable with this vaccine now i think people should feel comfortable because the chances of that are so small and the chances of covid-19 at any age in fa- affecting you badly are are significant so so that's very very clear rights and responsibilities do go together but i circle back to i wouldn't close the door on this but we have got to be sure we have tried everything possible that's least coercive and least intrusive. We don't even know where we're going to plateau in terms of vaccinations. We don't even know what the data is on how many university and college students aren't vaccinated. We don't, You know, good, good ethics is grounded in good science. We don't have enough for the equation at this point. Yeah, it, it
1: is messy. Absolutely. Let's go to Evie in Toronto. What are your thoughts on vaccine passports? Uh,
3: yes, uh, the more I hear every day the more i realize and i believe there is no way that the no vaxxers and the yes vaxxers are going to agree and you can have this discussion you know forever it's not going to change i am totally for the i am totally for the vaccine i think our, our our thing with rights now i'm so sick of hearing about rights when you know i think if it was another world war like say world war 2 God forbid. There would be, you know, they wouldn't want, nobody would go. They'll have rights. They don't want to defend the country. They have rights. I'm so sick of it.
1: Okay, let's go to Jan in Guelph. I think our last caller on this before we get final thoughts from our guests. Uh, Jan, what do you think about these vaccine passports or the idea of it or, or what it should look like or, or or how it should be used? Well,
3: uh, I agree with the lady. I'm sick and of Jan,
1: reason. you need to get on your handheld. I think you're too far away from the phone.
2: Just a moment. Okay. Can you
1: hear me better now? Not that well.
2: Is that better?
1: Well, I don't Jordan is that coming across on the board okay? Okay, go ahead.
3: Okay, is that better. Better. Oh good. I agree with the lady who just said she's sick and fed
5: up with people and their rights. We have to have a driver's license to drive. We have to have it. And actually this uh, certificate or whatever we can get for the vaccine, you know, is more important than that. And we
3: should all have to have one, and we should all have to show it. No doubt about it.
1: Okay, thank you, Jan. Righto. So, Jan De Silva with the Toronto Board of Trade. uh, I'm curious, you did say that you are pushing the Ford government to come up with some sort of vaccine. Um, Are you actually having meetings? Is this this something that you can see happening?
3: Look, we are uh, in active discussions at all levels of government and has been over the past uh, 15 months. Um, There is discussion or there is uh, communication underway at the moment with uh, the Premier, but I want to go back to the fact that what's underlying this is just giving our businesses every chance to reopen safely, to remain open safely, and that means what is the, the plan to keep them open and how can we make sure that we can assure our workforces that it's safe to return to the office. This is simply another layer of protection. There's more than 40 digital IDs, health IDs, being developed around the world. We've been monitoring this closely uh, since as far back as October. Again, it's just another layer of protection. We'll continue to have those discussions with all levels of government on the importance of doing this. And and Dr. Carrie
1: Bowman at the University of Toronto, is there a way to do this, provide proof of vaccination for businesses, uh, for non-essential activities that doesn't infringe on personal rights?
4: There could be. I don't think we have enough information now to make this decision. Uh, That's my essential point. And, you know, we don't even know where we're going to plateau on this. But look, I would say this, you know, I I do take the business side of this very seriously. In the early days of the pandemic, people rolled their eyes. You know, this is no time to talk about business and income. Well, we've watched how economics has gutted people's lives um, and, you know, Businesses absolutely do need a voice at the table in all of this, and this is not about chasing money. I mean, this is about the reality of, of the social fabric. But look, I, I, you know, I'm trying to go evidence based here, and we don't have enough information to make such a determination at this point. Uh, we may in time ahead. I don't think we're there, and because it, it does create ethical problems.
1: This conversation is going to continue. I thank, I really thank you both for your time. Great, informed, uh, interesting perspectives uh, for, for,
3: from both of you. Okay. thank you, thanks, Jane. Thanks, Dr. Bowman. Thank you, Jen. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.
1: Toronto Board of Trade President and CEO Jan DeSilva Silva and bioethicist Dr. Carrie Bowman at the University of Toronto. It's Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And coming up next, good news for family members of loved ones in long-term care, and they could use some good news.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.